0: And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2020. And by happenstance, I have uh, my good friend PK with me here today, and our good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital. Hi, Pam.
1: Good morning, Rich and PK. It's so good to hear from you. I want you to know I'm looking out my window again, and it is a beautiful bright blue sky. I know there's a little crispness in the air, which is kind of fun sometimes, and so it's, it's a wonderful day to be talking.
0: Fall is here, isn't it, PK? It's beautiful fall. It really is. So, Pam, could you give us some updates on your uh, patient census for uh, COVID patients?
1: I would be happy to. I know that we just talked on um, the 6th, so it hasn't been that long. Uh, but there is um, some interesting updates. So for Elmhurst Hospital... It looks like we have only gone up one patient. We had 19 patients with, with three on vents last time. We have 20 patients with one on vent. Um, of those 20 patients, we also have two that are awaiting test results, which is the same as last time. We have had two additional deaths, so we went from 90 to 92. And in um, DuPage County, DuPage County has gone from 18,414 last Week to nineteen thousand nine hundred and sixty-seven, with um, quite a few additional deaths. They were at five seventy last week. They are now at five ninety-two, and our state went from three hundred five and and eleven positive patients to three hundred thirty-one six hundred and twenty. So that's almost uh, thirty, you know, about twenty-eight thousand additional patients in the week, with with um, over a thousand, well, about four hundred more deaths. So from eight. 836 to 9127 and the good news the good news is that um, we have discharged more patients so we went from 568 discharges to 593 and the state has posi- um, recovery rate is still around 94% so I think those are all good things the bigger thing for me to say is I watch again the all of the outpatient testing that is happening and even at our hospital, it mirrors what's going on in the state. We see a lot more positive results in outpatient testing. They're not getting hospitalized, so our hospitalized numbers aren't really going up that much. But the number of patients that are positive seems to be growing. And I'm, I want, I'm very concerned that people are not remembering to take all of their precautions.
0: I'm looking at the uh, state positive tests that went up, you know, you said like 26,000. I mean, that's like 7 or 8% off the top of my head just in one week so uh it looks like that's really growing and i know the states around us are growing too so do you think it's just a matter of the fall and different temperatures or do you think it's just continued people not being careful
1: i think it is people being a little more comfortable i don't think it has anything to do with the temperatures or the fall i truly believe that people are just so tired of following the rules and wanting to be with their families and wanting to be with their friends, that they are just a little bit more um, comfortable and not following as tightly as they did in the beginning.
0: And are hospitals like Elmhurst any closer to getting saliva-based tests?
1: We are not. They're not released for us to be able to get the saliva-based tests. So, you know, we're still continuing to look into it. We want to do it. Uh, but we are not able to do it at this point. So currently we are receiving testing reagents for all four of our testing platforms, including the rapid test. Actually, we are now back to being able to do many more rapid tests than we were before, which which is really important as we want to make sure we test people prior to them coming into the hospital and uh, making sure our staff are all safe and getting them rapid tests. Um, and we are in the process of getting a new platform that will help replace one of our platforms we've been using, which is a 10-year-old instrument that had not known this kind of work volume prior to this and has been having a hard time. So hopefully we'll be getting that in soon. But we are still using the M2000 until we get the new equipment in.
2: Pam, what's supposed to be so special about the saliva test? I mean, the other test isn't very invasive, really.
1: No, the people just hear about it. So they want to know about the saliva test. The saliva test actually isn't as sensitive as the tests that we are doing. And um, and also, if you don't read it the right way, it can be not quite as accurate. Although it does, it is accurate, just not at the level of sensitivity.
2: Gotcha. Hey, with uh, at least one vaccine trial already halted, is it possible we might not have a vaccine until deep into 2021?
1: So we're anticipating there will not be a vaccine ready or available until the beginning, sometime in, in 2021. We, you know, we continue to work with DuPage County Health Department, IDPH, and our Region 8 emergency management partners to prepare for when we might receive the vaccine. Um, and we want to make sure we can get it available to our health care workers, but we want to really understand the vaccine before we do that. And, you know, you're right, it could be longer because each time that there's a trial that gets halted, it, it does impact the timing on whether we'll, when we'll get a vaccine.
0: Pam, does it appear that if I'm exposed to the coronavirus um, and I have a, a pretty good exposure to it, you know, like uh, 12 hours later, can I give it to somebody else or does it seem to take some time before I become infectious, so to speak?
1: Well, the CDC states that it can be anywhere from 2 to 14 days. So not 12 hours later or not 24 hours later, but two, probably 48 hours to 14 days. Typically, when you would experience symptoms or be be um, positive would be within 5 to 9 days, though. That's the typical time frame. But 2 to 14 are the, the outside parameters.
0: I know that, that folks that have been symptomatic with, uh, COVID-19 have to wait a while before they can go out in public. They, you know, their symptoms have to be getting better. They have to uh, not have a fever without the use of fever reducing meds. And in theory, they're not, um, contagious anymore at a certain point. How about asymptomatic people? Are they contagious? You know, how do you, how do you tell when it's safe for somebody to go out if you're asymptomatic?
1: Well, first, um, when an individual improves from their symptoms, when they're no longer experiencing a fever, their viral load for COVID begins to decrease and the RNA of the virus begins to die off. And that's why after a certain amount of time when they don't have the fever, we say they're not symptomatic. So they could still be shedding the virus and they could still test positive, but they would not be shedding a live virus that can cause others to get the illness. Now, if someone's asymptomatic, um, and they're shedding, you, you don't know that. And so that's why we do test people who are asymptomatic if they've been exposed, um, and we do ask them to self-isolate for 10 days from the date they, they had a positive test. Okay. Even if they're asymptomatic.
0: So that's the key to wait. If they do get a positive test, they're asymptomatic, they should wait for 10 days. That's best advice? Correct. Okay.
2: Hey, Pam, how likely is it that your significant other will not catch COVID from you, assuming that you were sleeping in the same bed and, you know, uh, kissing, things like that, uh, before you knew you were infected?
1: So that is not an easy question to answer because it will depend. So it's dependent on the amount of time you have the close contact together. And if you are kissing and sharing drinks and sleeping face-to-face, then there is a much greater chance, and as long as they have not already developed antibodies and, didn't, and had it and didn't know they had it, then there is a, you know, a good chance you would get COVID. If you are not doing those things, so let's say someone's feeling sick and so you've stayed away from each other, even if you're in the same house, you, you can, by chance, not get COVID, but, you know, it's, it's just very dependent.
2: They could get it and be asymptomatic.
1: You could have gotten an and been asymptomatic, yes, and then not know you have antibodies unless you got antibody testing and found out you do not have antibodies, and then that would make you more at risk.
0: Right. We've heard of a couple of circumstances, and uh, we might talk about one a little later, where um, there was somebody who tested positive for COVID and had all the classic symptoms, or at least many of them, and a few days later their spouse uh, had some of those symptoms also, but also t- um, tested negative. So are there a lot of false negative test results out there or was that person likely suffering from something else?
1: So the false negative rates vary greatly among the different COVID tests on the market. The rate of false negativity is dependent on many variables, including test methodology, specimen type, whether it's a navel swab or a saliva swab, how how well the specimen is collected, How quickly it's transported to the lab, how much virus the patient is actually producing at the time of the test. So in other words, there could be false negatives. A study recently published in the American Journal of Clinical Psychopathology assessed the false negative rates of four commonly used COVID testing platforms and the researchers reported false negative rates range from 2 percent to 17 percent. So here at EEH, we have found false negative rates ranging from 1% to 8% among our testing platforms. Now on the, what you were saying, they could have tested negative because it was too soon for the viral load to show up, depending on how sensitive the test stage was, or they could have had symptoms that were not COVID. So you really don't know. The best way to know is to go ahead and watch for um, the symptoms getting worse, and then retest a few days later. Yeah, I've,
2: I've also heard that um, if you've recovered from COVID, you can still test positive for quite some time afterwards, sometimes even up to three months. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. That is correct. It's documented that some have tested past 120 days. And the reason there may still be remnants of the dead RNA in the, the you know, the RNA is what is, you um, in the body that shows that you had the virus, and um, some of that dead RNA could still be in there, and that could, if it's a very highly sensitive test you took, could still be picked up in that RNA. But the R- dead RNA is not, is not contagious, so that's the important point. Just because they're testing positive doesn't mean they're contagious.
0: I think it's safe to say that it's not real easy for asymptomatic individuals to get tested, so testing really isn't widespread at this point. And there's obviously no vaccine, so is the social distancing that we're we're doing really just prolonging the length of this pandemic? Um, and may, maybe for good reason, maybe so that our medical resources aren't strained. But do you think it's just prolonging
1: it? Um, so I think you answered the question. So social distancing, universal masking, hand hygiene, and cleaning and disinfection of highly touched surfaces helps us to prevent the spread to others. And unfortunately without a vaccine and with the continued shortage of testing, we will be prolonging the pandemic, but it is prolonged for a very good reason so that we don't overwhelm hospitals and overwhelm our PPE. And so that we have all that available for when somebody does get sick, we can treat them and treat other illnesses at the same time. So if we had done what I think it was Sweden did, which was allow everybody to get sick, uh, we would not have been able to care for people the way we are. And it would have been more like what New York went through in the beginning stages of this, where there was no resources and people were getting even sicker and dying because they didn't have the right resources to treat. So even though we're prolonging it, it is prolonged for a very, very good reason, and that is to keep the rest of us healthy whether we have another illness or this illness if we need hospitalization things are available to us
2: i think the biggest benefit of prolonging it is to keep people from dying given that that can be the extreme result of, of what's going on right
1: absolutely
0: what um, if you were to look at your numbers in terms of outpatient procedures and in your inpatient census you know now versus last year and i don't mean year to date but more recently how do they compare
1: so for September to September, which would be telling you what's happening recently, we have 214 less admissions, and we have 13,441 less outpatient visits. Some of our biggest decreases in our emergency department, and it is primarily pediatric patients not coming into the emergency department, um, and we, we believe there's a couple of reasons for that. We think one is kids are not out with other kids and so they're not catching illnesses. Kids are not in sports as much, so they're not getting injured. And we think also parents may still be afraid to bring their kids to an emergency department, which they need to realize that the emergency departments are safe places to go. And they, and if someone really needs care, they can go there. And But whatever they're doing, as long as the child isn't sick and not getting care, uh, they're keeping people healthy, I guess.
0: As it relates to education at the hospital, and the the classic one that I always think of are are birthing classes, do they continue to be online only, or are some of those being held in person?
1: So because mothers and babies are such um, vulnerable people, we believe that we're keeping those all online for now, and we are not working to try to get it open where you're in person until we... Seeing more of a control of the illness going down. And because we continue to see a lot of outpatients who do have um, COVID, we do not want to expose mothers to each other. So we are um, keeping it online.
0: How's the, um, the blood supply currently? I haven't asked about that in a while.
1: I'm so glad you did ask because, you know, um, blood is such an important product that helps us both with Regular day-to-day care of people, but also with the convalescent plasma, which helps us with the treatment of COVID. And so, um, since March, the uh, Versity Blood Center of Illinois has canceled more than 4,500 blood drives due to the COVID closures of uh, businesses, schools, and community locations. And um, and they, in the result of that, is they've collected us. They've only collected 100,000 units of blood, which they need more than that. Um, what What we've done, though, and in the schools, usually there's blood drives in the high schools and the colleges, and because of remote learning, we're not doing those either. So one person's donation of blood could save lives in the hospital. Three teaspoons of blood could save a baby's life. So blood is really, really important. And donating blood also has benefits for the donor, such as it's like a little mini checkup. When you give blood, they check your blood pressure and your pulse, and they also check If you have antibodies for COVID, and um, so that before they would take your blood, so you would know that, and that would be very helpful. And if you do have antibodies, we (laughs) could use the blood for the convalescent blood. So we are going to sponsor a Versity blood drive this on Saturday, October twenty fifth, or on Sunday, sorry, Sunday, October twenty fifth, from ten a.m. to two p.m at the Alfred Rubin River Rock Community Center um, at 305 West Jackson Avenue in Naperville. So if anybody out there wants to find out if they have antibodies or if they want to be helpful and and donate blood, we would really encourage you to please come. And um, they do everything to keep you safe while you donate the blood, and it would be really helpful to all of the community.
0: So as it relates to convalescent plasma, our good friend on the line here, PK, um, he might be uh, able to help as it relates to that. So, PK, why don't you tell us about what's been going on with you recently?
2: Yeah, so I was going to say I just uh, – I would say I've just recovered from COVID-19. I'm, I'm 11 or 10 days since my diagnosis, and kind of miraculously at that 10-day point, really yesterday, I started feeling like a, a coming back to normal. Um, but it made me think um, – you know the plasma donation is supposed to be valuable if you've uh, recovered, but how soon, Pam, can I uh, donate plasma?
1: You know I don't have that answer, but I know if you call and it's on our website, University um, Blood Center, they will be happy to tell you the exact answer.
2: Okay, sounds good. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's been an interesting experience because I've heard of people that have had COVID that have had virtually no symptoms, or you know, the asymptomatic side of things, and then uh, other people that have been hospitalized, and obviously those people that have passed away, but um, some of the uh, symptoms were pretty extreme for me. I felt uh, like I had a bad flu um, for several days. I had no energy for many days, um, and uh, interestingly enough, you know, living with my wife, uh, she had symptoms for two days that was... Uh, was diagnosed, uh, negative. So it's, uh, it's been a weird journey.
0: And you're, um, are you willing to say how old you are PK?
2: Sure. 59.
0: And now uh, you're in relatively good shape, pretty healthy, thin, and, uh, you, uh, you suffered some pretty, pretty bad symptoms.
2: Yeah. You know, I thought I was somebody that might, um, have, you know, caught it and been asymptomatic and then had the immunity to it because, uh, I kept working through the whole thing. Uh, you know, um, what I do for a living was considered uh, an essential business. So we went to work every day and we, you know, we masked up. We tried to sanitize uh, and keep social distance and, and all those things. But I um, I was healthy the whole time. And then just, uh, you know, like I say, 10 days ago, all of a sudden, uh, came down with a pounding headache at first and then, became very weak and tired and, and then it just kind of blew up from there. So it was a, a strange, uh, experience.
1: And I just asked PK, do you, do you know, did you kind of let your guard down? Do you, did you, were you in contact with anybody who had become positive before? Is there, do you have any idea how you contracted this?
2: You know, I really don't. Obviously I, I thought long and hard about it and, um, the days before uh, the symptoms arose, uh, specifically, you know, I was looking at, and um, I mean, I, I, um, like I say, I've been out and about, but I've been careful, and I was uh, no less careful before I got sick than I had been during the whole pandemic. Um, so I really can't pinpoint it on anything. And just to just to show how strange it is, the fact that. You know, that I caught it and my wife did not, uh, goes to show that it really uh, is hard to predict and, and say where how it, how it catches someone.
1: Okay, I, I just want to say, and it's really important, the reason I asked that question is because I do believe that it is very interesting how people get it and how they react, what their bodies do. And then what happens with people they're close to. So I have a similar situation. You know, I'm I'm involved with this. You all know that I know what goes on day to day. And my husband and I happen to, um, he lives in Ottawa. I live up here during the week and I see him on the weekends. And about, oh, a week, a week and a half ago, he, ca- he had called me during the week. It was on a Tuesday or Wednesday and said, that he wasn't feeling good, that he had um, really pounding headache, uh, congestion, and extreme tiredness. And I thought, well, you've got allergies. You know, I'm like, just take some allergy medicine. And, you know, I was not a very understanding wife. I'm like, just take allergy medicine. You'll be fine. I know you have bad allergies. And he would take it. He said, I'm really not feeling good. He did not have a fever. He didn't have anything else. So the you know that week I and I saw him um, and you know he was he started to tell me that he was losing losing his sense of taste and that made me a little nervous um I took his temp he didn't have a temp but one day he did have a 99.8 temp on Sunday and then um I tried to get him covid testing and we were down in Ottawa, we couldn't get it till Tuesday of this week so I got him covid testing on Tuesday and the test came back on Thursday positive so, you know, he has no, he doesn't even go out. He has no idea where he got it, and he did not, not let his guard down. Um, I, of course, got nervous and said, okay, I need testing, and I got tested, and I am negative. I will go ahead and monitor myself and get tested again to make sure that I don't have it, but I have no symptoms, and I am negative. So, it's just interesting. It's not like him and I were together a lot, but we were together for the weekend, and um, And and he continues to have extreme fatigue, uh, just starting to feel better a little bit, and that pounding headache. So I think those are really good symptoms for people to pay attention to. The other thing I had asked our infection control, why are a lot less people getting as severely ill now? And I guess they're finding different strains now of the coronavirus, so it's mutating. So maybe there's a strain that is primarily the headaches and the congestion and extreme fatigue. And I know you weren't with my husband, so you did not give it to him and he didn't give it to you.
0: Well I know your your husband's been pretty much isolating, but he is a fisherman and I assume he goes out fishing by himself. So my question is, do you think that he caught it from a smallmouth bass?
1: <laughs> yes, let's blame it on the bass. <laughs>
2: does he does he take
1: his
0: fish to the fish market?
1: No, he catches it. So bass is back in the water. <laughs>
0: PK, one last question for you is, um, you know, we're, you're now, you said 10 days ago you tested, but I think you've had symptoms for about 11 days from what you told me. Um, how do you feel today?
2: Um, well, actually, let me explain that because I wanted to say uh, something Pam said reminded me of the variety of symptoms. Um, I, uh, two days ago, I did uh, lose my sense of smell Um and you know, prior to that, I had my sense of smell and taste, and all of a sudden, that one day, that that popped up, um, and then yesterday, it was sense of smell was back. Um, and there's there's been other strange symptoms, like um, kind of erratic, uh, like kind of shots of pain that uh, took place in different parts of my body. Uh, it was probably like maybe six or eight times. I, I didn't keep track of it. I wish I would have. Um, but just a little sharp pain for a, a few seconds, and then it was gone, and I talked to somebody else that had a similar thing, too, um, but just really erratic. So it's it's super strange how this is affecting people and very unpredictable. Um, so uh, the easiest way to describe it uh, is, is simply is that when I first became sick, I felt like I had a bad flu. And... Uh, that uh, slowly evolved where I felt a little bit better every day and then just in the last uh, couple days here I sort of feel like I'm coming out of having had a bad cold so a little bit general terms but the uh, really strange symptoms are the uh, you know the specifics that just kind of make this thing kind of eerie in a way
0: well and Pam I hope uh, your husband's feeling better is he is he getting a little better or is he just kind of at the same point he was in the beginning.
1: No, I think he's feeling a little better just as of yesterday. He's still very, very tired. I think the extreme tiredness and um, the headaches are the biggest issue right now. A little congestion still.
0: Well, thank you both for sharing those stories. I think the listeners will find those interesting. And as always, Pam, thanks for spending time with us and uh, giving us the latest updates from the medical community.
1: Yeah. Oh, you're very welcome. And, I, you know, I'm so glad Paul's P- PT is getting better. I am so, um, I apologize to my husband for not taking him more seriously when he was <laughs> telling me he was sick. And I appreciate these podcasts.
0: We'll look forward to talking to you again soon.
3: You're listening to the E-Town
4: Lowdown. Robbie, Rick, PK. When you don't have anything better to do.
0: And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with low-down legend P.K. and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director Dave Oberg.
4: Hey, boys and girls. One pounce a time, an Elmhurst farmer found treasure while digging a well. In the 1870s, Louis Growey was digging for water on his land when he found something precious in the earth. His shovel did not find gold or buried treasure. But something that proved very lucrative all the same. Hundreds of millions of years ago, during the Paleozoic era, Illinois lay beneath the ebb and flow of a warm, shallow island sea. Growy Shovel found that ancient seabed, born by time and pressure into a limestone ridge which passed beneath the growing community of Elmhurst. In time, that limestone would be transformed into the foundations of homes and businesses roads and
3: sidewalks which connected Elmhurst to a wider world. All right, so let's dig a little deeper. I've been really wanting to say that with this particular episode. Uh, Growey's discovery caught the attention of two area businessmen, Adolf Hammerschmidt of Naperville and Henry Ostman of Lombard. In 1883, the two businessmen formed a partnership to lease Growey's land and transform his small but promising quarry into a much larger concern. They connected the quarry to the main rail lines through a railroad spur, and after two years of profitable business, bought 11 acres of Growley's land outright for the sum of $3,300, about $88,000 in today's dollars, still a bargain in today's real estate market. Now, initially, the quarry produced clay brick and tile in addition to cut stone, but the clay tile quickly played out, and limestone became the sole focus of the operation. By 1893, Schmidt bought out Osman, serving as sole proprietor of the company, which he named the Elmhurst Chicago Stone Company. Sons Max and William joined the operation, and it remains a family business to this day. Max would also go on to serve as the city of Elmhurst's second mayor. Cut stone from the Elmhurst Chicago Stone Company served as foundations for countless Chicago buildings. Crushed stone from the quarry found its way into ready-mixed concrete, helping to build the expressways which ring Elmhurst today. The company employed cutting-edge technology in its operations, using steam shovels as early as 1915 before switching to diesel in the 1920s. Now as Chicago and the suburbs grew, the modest quarry of the 1880s and 90s grew as well. Workers dug deeper and deeper and the company acquired additional sites across DuPage County. Rail cars of cut and crushed stone gave way to an army of trucks. And then as the 20th century drew closer to its close, the quarry took on a new and unexpected meaning. Following a devastating flood in 1987, public officials sought new means to manage stormwater. DuPage County purchased the quarry in 1992 transforming it into a stormwater management facility in 1996. The biennial tours of the site, conducted in partnership with the Elmhurst History Museum and DuPage Stormwater Management, continue to be the hottest ticket in town, selling out in less time than a rock and roll concert. Nearby the quarry, the Elmhurst Chicago Stone Company's headquarters and concrete production plant still thrives at 400 West 1st Street, making it the oldest continually operating business in Elmhurst history.
4: Wow, Dave, you mean I could take a tour of the quarry?
3: Yeah, only in odd-numbered years.
4: Ah, and that's something that the museum works on with the quarry to make that available to the community. We we
3: love working with DuPage Stormwater Management on this, and I got to tell you, it's it's amazing. Uh, when we did the tour in 2017, uh, we sold out of all of the tickets in four hours. In 2019, we sold out in an hour and a half.
4: 2019 is 21, so our next one will be 23. No, 21, 21, right?
3: 21, God willing, and COVID don't rise.
4: (laughs) And to be clear, there's a couple uh, interesting uh, names there of our forefathers for the community. Just to clarify, it's Osman, not Assman, correct? That is correct. Okay, glad I didn't have to read that one. And then the other (laughs) one, lots of people go over, they say they're going over to Graw Mill, uh, in Oakbrook to walk around, but you and I know it's both growy mill, right? Growy mill. That is correct. Thanks for clarifying, Dave. You bet.
3: My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. The E-Town lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst armpit orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes. You heard that right. Nine feet in diameter.
0: This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.